according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Isaiah. We have been in this book for eight weeks. We've covered eight chapters. Today, we are in Isaiah chapter 9. The goal and idea of teaching Isaiah in 66 Sundays, followed by Jeremiah in 52 Sundays. Um, I'm still skeptical, oh me of little faith, and yet I believe this is what the Lord has provided for us. This is the format, even though I would love to just stop like today, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Can we spend the next eight weeks breaking that verse down? Let's spend the next year fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, such is not the format of what we have this hour. We are in Isaiah chapter 9 today. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 10 next week, and we're just going to keep on moving as the Lord has for us. You see that there is length and width and height and depth, and according to Ephesians, we are to know the length and width and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding. And then in all the dimensions of his word, we are very blessed to uh, study to show ourselves approved. So for today, we're dealing with the, uh, the breadth, the big picture, and we've got one message to try to cover one chapter. Let's get to it. Uh, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's bow before him in prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify this time together. Ask him to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much, Father, for the truth of your word and for this Isaiah series. Um, we're now eight weeks into it, our ninth week today. And Father, we've already been very blessed and we're anticipating so many more blessings. I thank you for the faithfulness of your prophet Isaiah, Father, who served you faithfully in spite of every affliction and conflict. Father, we thank you for the gospel that he proclaimed so clearly, for the comprehensive approach to your truth we can teach uh, the entire Bible, Father, out of the 66 chapters of Isaiah, Father. We can teach the whole 66 books of the canon, at least uh, to some degree, uh, out of this powerful, powerful message. I pray, Father, that we would uh, be blessed to uh, receive the truth on this day, that, Father, we would uh, set aside distractions, any of the uh, concerns, any of the details of life. There's so much going on, Father. Um, drive all that from our thinking. Fix our eyes firmly upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, it's a pretty straightforward chapter, I think, to break it down, 22 verses, and uh, nope, let me flip a page here, and uh, 21 verses, and I've double-checked everything. We should be good. We got this week's slideshow ready to go. Last week, I felt horrible uh, not having the chapter 8 slideshow ready, but we should be good for today. Chapter 9. There will be no more gloom. There will be no more gloom. Well, that's how chapter 8 ended. Chapter 8 ended with some gloom. And uh, you'll notice uh, at the end of chapter 8, when they are going under judgment, they are in doom. And this is part of the rebuke uh, in, from verse 19 onward. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, 
What are you doing that for? Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You and I serve the living God, and that's who we turn to for our answers, for our provision, for our hope, for our doctrine. To try to use the world's methods to turn to demons and all the false religions, what in the world are we doing that for? The uh, living and abiding Word of God we have in the complete canon of scriptures highlighted there, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. To the law and to the testimony. We might rewrite that, given that we've got a uh, complete canon. We would say to the Old and the New Testaments. To the Hebrew and the Greek scriptures. In other words, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. This is why we don't need extra biblical information. If it's contrary to the Bible, then we don't need it. It's false doctrine. If it's, com- if it's compatible with the Bible, well then, great. Why don't we just stick with the Bible? That had the information to begin with, <laughs> as far as that goes. All right? So uh, they have no dawn. And without a dawn, all they have is a false light. They have a false dawn, or they have uh, a, uh, what they think is light, what is falsely called knowledge, pseudonymous knowledge we talked about a couple weeks ago in uh, our Galatians series. And so as the chapter ends here, verses 21 and 22, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. But you can, you can be real religious and have all these false gods and all the rest. You can be politically correct and blah, blah, blah. But when things get tough, then who are you going to blame? All right? Particularly when your idol has let you down and say, you know what? I voted for you, but now I'm starving. I can't find work and everything is going, going in a handbasket. And uh, it's really interesting when, when you build yourself up as an idol and then your, uh, your impotence is, is uh, exposed, how quickly uh, idol worshipers will, will jump ship. And, uh, and will start hating their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. If all you have is something earthly to look forward to, you're in this kind of gloom. Well, good news then, as chapter 8 ends, chapter 9 begins, and the gloom is not eternal, not for us in Christ. If you were without Christ, then yes, you have a destiny of everlasting darkness in front of you. But for those of us who have Christ, we may have a temporal gloom on this earth, but that gloom gives way to the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The gloom that ended chapter 8 gives way to a great light in chapter 9. And I love that. I love the order of that. I love the order of Genesis, the order of creation, the order of the days. Do you ever wonder why, that's that, why it's that way? Why there was evening and morning day one, evening and morning day two? Why do you think it starts with the night and then comes the day? It's the pattern for our own salvation, the pattern for our own darkness. We start in the night. We start spiritually dead. We start in, uh, in uh, the lost estate of Adam, but then comes the day. And then we have the eternal day in Christ. And so we have the order of it, darkness and then light. Uh, there was darkness over the surface of the deep, but God said, let there be light. And there was light. And we have the order of it here. The gloom that ends chapter 8 begins, the, gives way to the great light in chapter 9. We start reading here, it says in verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious 
by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. And not many Old Testament references to Galilee, but this is a big one. All right, there's a handful, uh, including this is probably the most significant of all Old Testament references to Galilee. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. This is the context for all of this. This is the, the promise that Isaiah is making for what is going to provide for this gloom. What is going to break the Gentile yoke? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We get many names for Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah. We saw Emmanuel already back in chapter 7, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we'll call his name Emmanuel. And what I find powerful in the whole process of this is that none of these are names that he took in his first advent. None of these are names that he insisted he be called by or known by in the first advent. He was, in fact, God with us, but he took the name Jesus. He took the name of our salvation because in his first advent, that's what he came to do. He didn't come to break yokes. He didn't come to conquer. He didn't come to establish the throne. They rejected the throne, but he came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. And he was given the name Jesus from, uh, from his birth. Verse 7 says, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All right, so we're going to take verses 1 through 7 and handle those as a unit, and then we will uh, tackle the rest of the chapter, verses 8 through 21 as, uh, as a unit. So let's start with this. Gloom is giving way to light. Gloom is giving way to light. And we can be thankful that uh, God is so faithful to do this. The tribal allotments to Zebulun and Naphtali. The tribal allotments to Zebulun and Naphtali were never exalted by the Lord. You can search throughout the Old Testament, find all the great events that took place in Zebulun and Naphtali, and you will be searching a long, long time. In fact, you will read the entire Old Testament and still be looking for uh, great, glorious events of marvelous things that took place in the land of Zebulun or the land of Naphtali. These are the tribes that we struggle to remember. (laughs) These are the tribes when we're scraping for naming the 12 sons of, of, uh, of Israel or of Jacob. We, we, we do the big ones pretty off. We can get J- Judah. We can get Benjamin. We can get, uh, maybe then we go to Ephraim and Manasseh or something like that. And then, then we start scra- scraping, right? Then we start scratching our heads and saying, well, now, wait a minute. Um, I remember there was Reuben, Levi, Simeon. Those were the first ones, okay? And those were the ones all born to Leah. And then, hmm, goodness, then what? 
Well, then Rachel got jealous and gave her handmaiden, and then a couple babies got born, and then another handmaiden, and a couple more babies. Finally, we get to Rachel finally starts having babies herself, and there was Judah, uh, there was uh, Joseph and Benjamin, and she died. All right, was that all twelve? No, I skipped some, didn't I? <laughs> I skipped the handmaidens. We got uh, Dan and Gad and Asher and all these more obscure ones that we're really scraping to try to find. And then Leah actually had two more after the handmaiden thing. Leah had two final sons and then the daughter Dinah. Um, so anyway, unless you review this, the point, I'm fresh because this is where I've been with the teenagers recently. Um, but if you don't review them periodically, you will never remember all these tribes. And the ones you're going to forget are going to be these. Who remembers Zebulun, right? Who remembers Naphtali? Who remembers Issachar? There's another one I didn't mention a minute ago. These are the pretty obscure tribes where nothing significant happened. Or if it did happen, it was almost by accident, and then we move on, okay? A couple of judges... You say I'm cutting Elon short because Elon was from uh, Naphtali. Great. You found the one guy in the Bible from Naphtali. Or, uh, or uh, uh, Barak, okay? The judge, Deborah and Barak. Yeah, he was from uh, Zebulun. Or maybe I have those backwards. See, see what I'm saying? We don't pay attention to these tribes. And yet, God selects the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. See, from this very territory will come one from Galilee who will be the pinnacle of exaltation. One is coming from Galilee, of course, who is the savior of us all. <laughs> he comes from Galilee and uh, he's mocked, he's rejected, he's, he's dismissed in this. Let me show you the map and then we'll look at those verses. The, um, this was similar to the map I wanted to show you last week, but it had the wrong slide show up the um, tribal distribution of Palestine, and you can get this in your Logos software. Uh, We are very comfortable down here in the south because there's Jerusalem kind of on the boundary between Judah and Benjamin. And when uh, the kingdom was split, remember the northern kingdom got the ten tribes and the southern kingdom just got Judah and Benjamin, which, uh, by the way, included a wholesale exodus from Simeon down here who should have stayed in the south, who should have stayed faithful with Judah and Benjamin, at least geographically it made more sense. Um, And yet, no, all the Simeonites uh, went to the north. They wanted to identify with Ephraim and Dan. And Remember there were eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So you got west Manasseh and east Manasseh there. And so um, anyway, here's this region. Issachar, and whoever remembers Issachar, like I said, nobody remembers Issachar, and nobody remembers Zebulun, and nobody remembers Naphtali, and who remembers Asher? The sad part about Asher is most of their land they, they never took because most of their land was filled with uh, Phoenicia, the Phoenicians that had Tyre and Sidon and the coastal cities. And so Asher just kind of took a little bit of what they could and then kind of made do with uh, whatever else. And Dan, by the way, uh, was supposed to be in the south, but uh, they likewise, they weren't, uh, they weren't happy with with their land grant, the reason being, again, you got Philistines and you got other uh, coastal folks there, and they said, well, that's too hard. We won't take that. We'll just come up here and take a little bit out of Naphtali, because again, who cares? It's only Naphtali. So we're dealing with some of the more obscure tribes, all right? Some of the more obscure tribes is this region, but if we were looking at a New Testament map instead of a, an Old Testament map, these would have different labels. All right, and this would be the Sea of Galilee there. We would be seeing Jesus walking on the water, and we would be seeing the disciples. We would be seeing Nazareth, and we'd be seeing um, 
more uh, more stories there if uh, we change our timeline here and go to a uh, New Testament map. Which I think I have, or maybe I don't. Anyway, so here's the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And yes, I know, the, the judge Elon and the judge Barak. Okay? And Barak, yes, he was a judge, but he was kind of a loser because he insisted that Deborah do everything. So anyway, that's, that's the pinnacle of what you have for Zebulun and, and Naphtali. Uh, here's some uh, background for you. How about 1 Kings 9? It shows you how this territory was valued. In 1 Kings chapter 9, um, <laughs> you realize if it's uh, something you don't really care about and you're ready to just give it away. Second, first Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Kings chapter nine. There we go. And so, um, and I love this. Remember David, David, the great man of faith, the great man of grace. He's told he can't build the temple, so instead of pouting like you and I would do, he uh, he actually just uh, worshipped and celebrated and said, "Thank you, Lord. My son's going to build the temple. All right, I can't build it, but I can fund it." And so he, he lays aside the funding. He arranges a friendship with Hiram, king of Tyre. And so Hiram, or Iran, king of Tyre, had uh, uh, supplied the, uh, the, the lumber, supplied Solomon with the cedar and the cypress timber and the gold according to all his desires. And we see it listed here. And then King Solomon gave Hiram, or Hiram, 20 cities in the land of Galilee. This is the land we're talking about, the tribal allotment from Zebulun and Naphtali. It was called Galilee even back then. So Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. <laughs> Looking around and saying, really? This is, this, is, this is what you're giving me? And uh, he said, what are these cities which you have given me, my brother? So they were called the land of Kabul to this day. Basically, good for nothing. All right? Good for nothing. And uh, anyway, so Hiram sent to the king uh, 120 talents of gold. Now what's remarkable is that Hiram will bless Solomon. Hiram was a friend of David. Hiram is such a strong Gentile believer. I believe that Hiram blessed his people. The Philistines were blessed for centuries because of Hiram and his blessing of David. Even when Tyre became wicked, even when Tyre starts producing such things as Jezebel, uh, there is still a blessing of, uh, of, by association, a blessing in terms of the heritage and legacy of what Tyre could be thankful for. God blessed the, the Phoenicians uh, significantly for what they uh, did with David and uh, Solomon. All right, so there's just one example how uh, these lands were never exalted by the Lord. They were largely dismissed. They were largely uh, not uh, significant or even appreciated. Um, when uh, given as uh, as an inheritance, uh, John seven fifty two in the New Testament, we've got a, a uh, concept here in John seven fifty two. More of the dismissive scorn. Of course, by the time you get to the New Testament period, it's uh, it's a little bit different. But you have um, 
all the pride of the Pharisees, all the pride of the religious leaders, and the, the center of, of everything was Jerusalem. The center of everything was in the south, and so much so that Galileans were, were dismissed. They were rejected. They were uh, out of hand, just obviously. Nothing good ever can come out of Nazareth. What good can come out of Galilee? Um, there's no prophet that arises out of Galilee. And um, we see the dismissing scorn here in John chapter 7. This is uh, the Feast of Trumpets. This is uh, six months before the cross, and there's a great division that happens here. Um, in John seven forty, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Here's Jesus teaching in the temple, and they're just stunned. This has to be the Christ. This has to be the prophet. And, and then there's the confusion, because you got one group saying, this is the prophet, and the others were saying, this is the Christ. Shows you how confused they are. I think it's both one and the same when we understand prophecy. Um, still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? <laughs> Where's a Bible verse for that? There's no Bible verse for that. Even, even wicked King Herod was told that uh, the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Okay? And uh, has the scripture not said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David, from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then uh, they even dispatched uh, officers with an arrest warrant. And I like this because my law enforcement background, I know what I would do if I was given an arrest warrant and uh, was charged with bringing in my, uh, my uh, target. And uh, they return back empty-handed. And they say, uh, you know, you, you failed here. What's, what's going on? And the officer said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Have you heard what this guy has to say? We can't arrest this guy. And the Pharisees then answered him, you've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? You see their pride? You see their high and mightiness? This is, this is Gruber here boasting about how stupid the people are. This is just, trust us, we're the experts. We know, and you morons need to just listen and do what we tell you to do. It's actually not true because one of the leaders was Nicodemus and he got saved. He was told to be born again and he got born again. All right. And so uh, the crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. Is accursed. Man, are you kidding me? The pharisaical arrogance that says, if you don't know what we know or believe what we believe or follow what we tell you to do, then just go to hell. Okay? Bluntly. That's what accursed is. Okay? Anathema. Go to hell. You're, you're not part of the body of Christ. You're not regenerate. You're not, anyway, strong language. Pardon my language if that offended you, but there it is, accursed. And so here's Nicodemus, who came to them before, and he, he pops up again, right on, right on time, because they had just said, none of us believed in him. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> Nicodemus, what courage for this, steps up and says, our law does not judge a man unless it hears from him first and knows what he's doing, does it? Have we conducted this trial already? We haven't even called the witnesses yet. You've already pronounced him guilty. And they answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? <laughs> you know, they, 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 they sound funny. We can tell by the way you talk. That's how Peter got caught on the night that he denied Jesus. You talk, you sound like one of him. You got that, you got that Galilee twang or whatever it was, okay? Are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Search and see. Except for, of course, Isaiah chapter 9. All right. Nicodemus could say, well, you ought to listen to the Austin Bible Church message out of Isaiah chapter 9 and you'll learn something here. 
Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So these tribal allotments, this whole territory was never center stage. It was never exalted. In fact, this is why at the beginning of John chapter 7, even Jesus' unbelieving brothers were saying, look, you want to go big time. Come on. You've got to get up to Jerusalem. Uh, go to, leave here and go to Judea. That's in chapter 7 and verse 3. So that your disciples also may see your works that you're doing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Not even his brothers were believing in him. All right? Galilee is small potatoes. This is, nobody knows anything about what goes on here. You know, maybe you're a great stage actor in Paducah, Kentucky, but come on, go to Broadway. Get on the, get on the big stage as it were. I often correlate Galilee with Kentucky, just because. <laughs> All right? That's the kind of scorn that they held Galilee with. Just a bunch of hicks, a bunch of shepherds and whatever. All right. Fishermen and a bunch of other ne'er-do-wells. And yet, this is the land that's going to produce from his childhood, okay, where he was raised. And part of this too is how we um, put Scripture together with Scripture. The benefits we have as we study to show ourselves approved. Because that, that Bethlehem prophecy they mentioned is a legitimate prophecy. And we don't fall for the either-or trap or think that, ooh, if this one's right, that one has to be wrong. That he has to come from either uh, Bethlehem or Galilee. Because then we can go to Isaiah or we can go to Hosea, and read about out of Egypt, I will call my son. Oh man, now my, I'm really pulling my hair out now. Okay, And if you're a Bible skeptic, or you're a doubter, or you're a whatever, if you're just a critic, and you don't want to believe anything anyway to begin with, then you would just throw up your hands and say, it's all complicated, it's all contradictory, how do you know what to believe, what is truth? Okay, Wash your hands like Pilate. Or you can be noble-minded like the Bereans and search the Scriptures diligently and see if these things are so. And take a look and see, you know what? There's a Bethlehem prophecy and I can show you a Bethlehem fulfillment because of, of a political thing and he had to go and, fulfill, and register for a census and that's where, uh, what do you know? The, the days were complete for her to give birth and I guess we're having a baby here. All right? But then also the Galilee fulfillment because when they returned from Egypt, they settled in Galilee. They were raised in obscurity. I love that. God gave Jesus the blessing of growing up in obscurity in his childhood. And then, of course, out of Egypt, I will call my son. We understand they had to flee to Egypt to escape after the massacre of the babies. And they were in Egypt for a short period of time. This is, again, whoever would have planned this. Could, could Joseph and Mary have planned this themselves in their wisdom? Not for a minute. Not for a minute. You get a couple of young kids and they're just getting married, all right? Fun, fun thing to illustrate. And what do they know? They don't know. They're just in love and whatever. So as far as making long-term plans and this and that and all these other details, but lo and behold, here come the wise men with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And all of a sudden, they've got a treasure. They've got wealth beyond anything they've ever had before. They're just poor. You know, when they circumcised Jesus, they took him into the temple. They brought the poorest of the three uh, the three offerings they could have brought. The poor, there's three options depending on your economics for the firstborn sacrifice of your son. They brought the birds. They brought the poorest one. And so we know that Joseph and Mary were just scraping by until the wise men arrive, and now they have a fortune. Now they can pick up and leave. If you had to pick up tomorrow and go live in a foreign country and stay there for three years, do you got the cash in your pocket to do it right now? Right here, right now? 
All right? But God is so faithful. The night they needed it, he funded their trip. I just think he's just a marvelous thing. So, Bethlehem, Egypt, Galilee, they're all true. They're all true. God makes promises. He keeps his promises. Don't fall for the either or. All right? There is so much in this. And if you study to show yourself approved, if you become a diligent student of the Word of God, these are the kind of things that should just come alive in your heart and just think, wow, God's an awesome God. (laughs) I love the way these things all come together. So, um, the pinnacle of exaltation, Isaiah 9, 1, again, the light from you will come the light. He chooses the things that are not. Even when he picked David, he went to this tiny, Bethlehem was a tiny little thing, too small to be counted among the, the clans of Judah. And he selected Jesse, the Ephraimite, or the, uh, the Bethlehemite, to be the, um, to be the, for, the father of King David. All right. Uh, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16, again, real quickly. Um, we see more of this scorn. And yet this is the passage where Isaiah 9 gets quoted. So we see its fulfillment. And you can take this and do your own study with this. Take it and share it with uh, children or neighbors or both. Whatever you're doing here, Matthew chapter 4, and you can see the fulfillment of this. Verses 12 through 16. When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. See, early they had a ministry in Judah, uh, but then the Baptists got arrested, and so, uh, well, it's time to go to Galilee. And so leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. All right, and there's our verses from Isaiah chapter 9. So uh, all those uh, genius-level Pharisees search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Again, they should have known better. Now, the first advent of Jesus Christ will shine the light in the darkness. The first advent of Jesus Christ will shine the light in the darkness. And these two verses, verses 2 and 3, we understand as first advent. But verses 4 and 5, we're going to understand as second advent. And it's the same prophecy. It's the same message through Isaiah. And I hope that doesn't bother you because it's going to happen again and again and again in the book of Isaiah. We're going to have prophetic messages that will encompass both first and second advent. And we have to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to know where to, to draw that line, as Jesus does. And the better illustration is, Acts, is um, uh, chapter 61, in Isaiah chapter 61, because we have a text that Jesus preaches from in Luke 4. And Jesus goes into the synagogue, he starts preaching out of Isaiah, he, uh, he's reading the scroll there from Isaiah 61, and he reads one verse and a third of verse 2. And then he rolls up the scroll and he has a seat. And he didn't finish the, the second third and the third third of verse 2, and he didn't finish the rest of the paragraph in Isaiah 61. The reason being was that he was rightly dividing the word of truth. And he was preaching in that day, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in order to, to preach that, he had to stop when he reached the end of the first Advent material, and he wouldn't go on to, to preach the second Advent material. Same thing we've got to do here in this chapter. Because the, uh, the light that shines certainly happened in first advent but the breaking of the yoke hasn't happened yet and the throne of david has not yet been reseated and these titles he's not yet claimed he's he's worthy of them he's entitled to them but he will not claim them or assert them until such time as god the father bestows them upon him he's presently seated at his right hand until such time as the father gives him that uh, that provision 
So the first advent of Jesus Christ will shine the light in the darkness, but sadly, it results in a large-scale rejection. This is how John begins his gospel. In John chapter 1, he says, The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. You're familiar with how the gospel of John gets started? Concepts that we glean out of uh, Isaiah chapter 9. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. What kind of light is that? The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. We talk about uh, the forerunner, John the Baptist, here in verses 6 through 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And then here's Jesus. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Enlightens every man. If you want to find some kind of a gospel for somebody other than the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, you've got a false gospel. There is only one light for fallen mankind. Uh, every, every unbeliever you ever witnessed to is in Adam. So the only provision is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. The world did not know him. Here's the creator of the universe and uh, rejecting their, uh, their God and their Savior. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. The Jewish people were by and large negative. Other than the the remnant that accepted, the remnant that got saved, the bulk of the Jewish people rejected the Galilean carpenter. They absolutely rejected Jesus of Nazareth. The religious leaders, the the rulers, the political leaders, as a nation, they rejected him. But as many as received him, okay, and this, this, this dynamic, I think, is important. that we, we identify that there is a corporate acceptance or a corporate rejection, but then there is an individual acceptance or an individual rejection. And those are, the, those are the distinctions I think are largely lost on a whole lot of folks. Israel as a nation, corporately, as a body, rejected their Christ. But individuals within the nation accepted the Christ. And so they were saved. They received eternal life. Don't think, I understand what's happening at Second Advent. What's going to happen is that Israel as a nation will accept their Christ. They will accept their king and they will be ushered into the kingdom. But of course, there will be individuals, individual Jewish unbelievers that will reject the Christ at Second Advent. And so they have to be executed before the millennial kingdom begins. We'll talk about that too in some things coming up. So the first advent of Jesus Christ will shine the light in the darkness, but sadly results in a large-scale rejection. And so, the second advent of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we, we ponder the what-ifs. We ponder, you know, had what, what if Israel had accepted the Christ? Would there have been a second advent? Would there have been 2,000 years in between? Would there have been? No, the kingdom was at hand. The kingdom was imminent. They, they were, John the Baptist was preparing the Jewish people for the kingdom. And had the nation accepted the kingdom, it would have unveiled right then, right there. All right? And uh, there's other details, and we don't understand because we're not, we're not suited to that kind of thinking. But God in his foreknowledge knows every what-if scenario. Because you might say, well, then how could the bride of Christ been created? How could he created the church if, if there had not been a first and second advent? Okay? And you're Again, we're finite in our thinking. God obviously could have created a bride some other way than he did create the bride. Point being, they rejected their Christ. There is now a second advent. 
there is now a second time that the Messiah will come into the world. And when he comes into the world the second time, it's not going to be in, a, in another virgin birth, let me tell you. Okay? He did that once. The, the, the time where he came and where he laid aside his privileges, guess what? He's not laying aside privileges in second advent. He is coming in power and great glory. He's going to come uh, riding on the white horse. We're going to follow him on white horses. He's going to come in victory. He's going to come and fulfill these verses here, breaking these yokes in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. This yoke, they've been under this yoke since Babylon. Since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. They've been under Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman yokes ever since. They're going to stay under those yokes, all right? They're going to stay under those yokes, Doug. They're going to stay under those yokes until Jesus Christ returns at second advent, all right? They're going to stay under those yokes. Every uh, boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. We, we already discussed back in chapter 2, when is it that swords will be beaten into plowshares and, and spears and pruning hooks? When is it we can finally be done with war? Well, we can finally be done with war when Jesus Christ conquers. When he destroys his enemies, then we will be finally be done with war. Then we can burn these weapons. Then we can burn these uh, boots and cloaks and all of the um, uh, uniforms and all of the uh, things necessary for battle. And only then. You want to visualize world peace? like the bumper sticker, all right? Visualize Jesus Christ victorious and conquering in Armageddon. That's just too long to put on a bumper sticker, I know. Visualize, <laughs> visualize the victorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ destroying Satan, Antichrist, and all the forces of darkness. What a day that's going to be, all right? And you and I are going to be there because we are riding on white horses behind our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to Revelation chapter 19. So first advent, second advent. See how both of these prophecies fit within the scope of this same context, in the scope of the same passage in, in, uh, in these verses, 2 through 7. And get used to it because it's going to happen again and again and again in the uh, book of Isaiah. A child born and a son given. Two things, all right? Two things. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, there's poetry in this. Much of Isaiah is poetic. But in the poetry, uh, Hebrew poetry loves couplets, it loves repetition uh, and, and so forth. But in this poetry and in this reduplication are two important truths. There is a difference between the son who's bo- a child who's born in the humanity of our Savior and his physical birth and the son who's given in terms of the deity of our, uh, of our uh, Lord and Savior and his preexistence before the virgin birth. All right? There are two truths that are communicated in this wonderful poetry. A child born and a son given demonstrates the hypostatic union and great truth of Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. In his pre-incarnate glory, because there's two things that are happening. A child is born and a son is given. God the Father gave His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All right? And so we understand that when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin and when God the Father impregnated her womb, that God the Son was placed within the womb of of Mary, that the body thou hast prepared for me, we're told. 
All right, in the book of Psalms, quoted in Hebrews, a body thou hast prepared for me. And so Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God from all eternity, now intersects in space and time and enters into a finite existence as the God-man in the womb of Mary. And so both of these truths are there. And this is what we see in John chapter 1 and John chapter 8. If you want some extra verses to help explain this, if, you, uh, if you're talking to somebody and they don't understand that uh, before the virgin had a, conceived and had a son, that he existed from all eternity with God the Father. John chapter 1. And also know that this is unique in human history. <laughs> all right? Don't, uh, you and I, no, no, no. Right, there'll be some, maybe there's some New Agers out there, some Hindus or some other folks that try to convince you that you are also eternal, that your soul has always been, and uh, like the universe and like all souls, we're just eternal, and then we, we, we are birthed, we are incarnate, and then we die, we go back to being eternal again. No, okay, that's, that's not biblical, that's heretical, that's evil. The only soul that existed before a pregnancy was Jesus Christ, all right? the only soul that existed before a pregnancy. And if you want more on that, uh, you can come to systematic theology tonight because <laughs> we've been dealing with anthropology and homardiology and where do souls come from? And uh, mom and dads produce babies, but do they produce bodies only or do they produce souls? How does that work? And uh, I won't give it away because that's what we're dealing with tonight. But sex is more than just physical, I'll tell you that, okay? There's the spiritual component and the dynamic of uh, procreation. Different topic. Now, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. This is the beginning that's before the Genesis 1-1 beginning. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. He was the agent. God, The Father was the architect. The Son was the carpenter. Even in creating the universe, we see the uh, function of Trinity in this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of, notice now, the only begotten from the Father. God the Son entered into a physical life existence. And uh, in the womb of Mary, it was the mechanism for how this took place. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right? So here we have it. This is our Christmas story. We're approaching Christmas next month. Here's, uh, here's some Isaiah passages and John passages you can use. He even alludes to this when he's rebuking the uh, Pharisees in chapter 8. And they're all proud to be sons of Abraham. And he says, Abraham didn't do what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, I remember Abraham. Remember that political speech with, uh, I don't know, all kinds of political today. When um, at that, at that debate with Vice President Quayle and, and uh, anyway, we talked about I knew John Kennedy and he was a friend of mine, okay? Well, here's Jesus saying, I knew Abraham. Abraham was a friend of mine. And you're not Abraham. You're not doing what Abraham did. And so um, in 56 through 59, they say, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. (laughs) 
I am. Seven times he declares, I am, in the Gospel of John. So, you want to teach hypostatic union? Here's a way to do it. Go to Isaiah chapter 9 and show a son will be, a child will be born, a son will be given, and then show the two sides of this and illustrate with, uh, with the Gospel of John. Here's his titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And these are titles that Jesus Christ will accept during his millennial reign and after the millennial reign, during the dispensation of the fullness of times. The new heavens and new earth features a new stewardship called the fullness of times after the millennium. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. I realize some people divide it in different ways. They make wonderful a name all on its own, counselor a name all on its own. Can't really do that with eternal father or uh, prince of peace. In any event, I think it's best to keep it this way with four names. All right, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. None of those he took in his first advent. He even said, do you think I came to bring peace? I came to bring a sword. That because of the gospel, it's going to divide families. The gospel is going to divide all kinds of things. For those who accept the gospel and become part of God's family, and those who reject the gospel and hate those who accept the gospel, it becomes a big division. Now, prince of peace, this is second advent. This is after he breaks the uh, Gentile powers over Jerusalem. Likewise, wonderful counselor. He will be the global teacher. Kings will have to come to Jerusalem and learn from Jesus Christ. Nowadays, we've got summits and gatherings and economic gatherings in Australia and wherever different places. I tell you what, they're not showing up in those places to worship Jesus Christ and to learn the word of God from him. They will, though, after the second advent. He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, God himself, eternal father. That bothers a lot of people. Why is God the son called the father? Okay. Well, he becomes the father. He has the father function for the thousand generations of the fullness of time in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't have a lot of time to break this down, but we understand Ephesians 1.10 and Revelation 21.7 can relate to this. Ephesians 1.10. Do you ever uh, get your eyes off the ball? Of course, we all do. We're human. All right. We, we, think, we're, we're, we think we're headed a particular direction, then we get distracted, we, we lose focus. We stop looking at the goal. We stop looking at the objective. God never does. God never does. And everything that God did, and in Ephesians 1, we've got a, a powerful psalm describing what God the Father has done, blessing us, choosing us, predestining us, um, seating us, lavishing grace upon us. Everything God has done was with a view in verse 10. With a view. I love that. With a view. He never lost sight of his view. He never lost focus on what he was doing. With a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. An administration suitable to the fullness of times. And it's not the millennium. It's not the church age. It's after the millennium. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
This is after the millennium. This is after the, the uh, death in Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan and all the unbelievers are thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire is sealed off forever. There is no more under the earth. See, right now, everything is in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. But in the fullness of times, everything is going to be in the heavens and on the earth. There's going to be no more under the earth during the thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. All right? Fullness of time. Millennium is a thousand years. Fullness of times is a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. Revelation 21.7. Here is the Alpha and the Omega. Here is Jesus Christ speaking. Here's more titles he didn't claim in First Advent, but he will be very entitled to in Second Advent. Revelation 21. He said to me in verse 6, it is done. Oh, I love that. Remember the it is finished statement on the cross. This one's even better. This one's because of that one, okay? I don't want to minimize that one. I like that one a lot. But this one, think about this one. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. Jesus Christ will enter into the Father function in the new heavens and new earth of the fullness of time. All right? Not the millennium. In the millennium, he's seated on the throne of David, and God the Father is still reigning in heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. But in the fullness of time on the new earth, for the thousand generations, God the Father gives all of his functions over to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ will rule for a thousand generations in the activity of the Father. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Titles he will accept and exercise during his millennial reign and during the fullness of time. Now, the rest of the chapter. (laughs) That's not bad. 40 minutes for the first seven verses and 10 minutes for the last however many. Although this is a lot of uh, swords and people dying. There's a lot of judgment here. I like this kind of stuff. Um, You know, battles, you know. If you know me, then my kind of movies usually involve dragons and swords and people dying. If if there's a story in there and a plot, that's, that's that's a plus, but not always necessary as long as there's dragons and swords and people dying. And those are the greatest movies ever made. Now, Here is a lot of warfare, a lot of judgment, and a lot of grace. A whole lot of grace in these cycles that we see unfold. The northern kingdom of Israel faces God's judgment for their alliance against Judah. We talked about that in chapter 7 and chapter 8. The uh, king in the north, the uh, the Jewish king of of Israel, Pekah, had uh, formed an alliance with Rezin, the king of Aram. And the Arameans and the northern kingdom of Israel together formed an alliance to go attack the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, in the divided kingdom, you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They're both Jewish kingdoms filled with Jewish tribes and Jewish people. But the northern Jewish kingdom of Israel was attacking the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah, and they got some Arameans to help them. They formed an alliance with, with, uh, with Rezin. And so uh, Damascus uh, then forms this alliance with Samaria, and they go and they attack Jerusalem. Well, they're going to come into judgment for that. 
They tell you, you cannot, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and that includes yourself. Okay? If Jewish people curse other Jewish people, then Jewish people will come under the Abrahamic curse for violating the I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you promises of the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis chapter 12. And this is huge. This means God is not a respecter of persons. God does not show favorites. God doesn't let Israel off the hook because they're Jews. You know, he's going to judge Damascus. He's going to judge Assyria. He's going to judge Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. He judges everybody that attacks Jerusalem, including other Jews from the northern kingdom of Israel. They too come under divine discipline for attacking the house of David. They're attacking the throne of David. They're attacking Yahweh himself in that regard. So the northern kingdom of Israel faces God's judgment for their alliance against Judah. Now let me make it simple for you. As we look through verses 8 through 21 here, um, there are cycles in this. And you're going to spot it in verse 12, in verse 17, in verse 21. And then we've got to actually cross into chapter 10 because we're going to see it again in verse 4 of chapter 10. In each of these stretches, it ends, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Look with me at verse 12, okay? In the second part of verse 12, it says, in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. In spite of all this. And the all this is 8 through 12, okay? The verse is in front of that. In spite of all this, there's more. There's more, okay? And so then you get more in verses 13 and following. And yet, in spite of all this, Down to verse 17. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. Well, when does it stop? When does it stop? Isn't this enough? Isn't this enough? Well, in spite of all this, repentance has not occurred. In spite of all this, there's more to come. And so more in verses 18 and following. You want more? Here's another one. You want more? Here's another one. Down to verse 21. uh, Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, and together they're against Judah. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. All right? And so in the, the, the last part of this chapter, we can break it down into segments, and we can see the language of the text actually very poetic. The language of the text actually helps us to, uh, to outline the material and to show the cycles, the increasing cycles of discipline upon the northern kingdom. And it actually, it's a bad chapter division. It doesn't stop in chapter 9. There's one more paragraph to go in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And it's a woe message, and uh, it ends uh, in spite of all this, okay? And sadly, this final cycle of discipline, nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or to fall among the slain. There's no repentance happening now because you're either dead or captive, right? By the time you reach the final cycle of discipline. And in spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. And so here we have the grammatical clues that help us in outlining the Hebrew text of this passage and understanding the doctrine that's being taught. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. Demonstrates that the waves of increasing national discipline demonstrates the waves of increasing national discipline that fail to produce repentance. 
that fail to produce repentance. What happens if the nation repents at any one of these steps? At any one of these steps, what happens if they are humbled? What happens if they repent? Remember, God desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He says in Ezekiel, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather that the wicked should repent and live. Each one of these steps. And you can use this passage. You can go to Leviticus 26 is the better one. It's the more complete one. All right. Um, where you get full six cycles in Leviticus 26. Here it's, I think they've already entered in, they've already passed by a couple of cycles by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 9. In spite of all this, see, we have waves of increasing national discipline. And so those who have insight, that is, believers with a divine viewpoint perspective, ought to stand up and shout from the rooftops when our nation is about to go under. We had the idiom that was uh, highlighted already in Isaiah 9, 12, 17, 21, Isaiah uh, 10, 4. It actually had previously been featured in Isaiah 5, 25. You can look that up on your own. Notice, see if you observe us in this. There's a lot of pride here. Pride and arrogance keeps them in denial for the judgment they face. Pride and arrogance keeps them in denial for the judgment they face. Okay. Yeah, you knocked our building down. We'll, we'll, build, a, we'll build a better one. We'll build a taller one. We'll build it again. <laughs> The Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it. That is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. All right, yeah, you knocked it down, but hey, it was brick anyway. We're going to build with something better. The new one's going to be taller. It's going to be better. Have you learned anything? Have you learned that your nation's under judgment? Are you humble and repentant? Are you angry and full of yourself? The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. What do you want cedars for? Because the Phoenicians have cedars? Is that why you want them? Other countries have them? What's wrong with your sycamores? The sycamore is the tree God gave you. You're not happy with what God gave you? And... uh, we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. See, resin used to be your ally. Now resin is your adversary. And now resin has a new buddy. It's not you anymore. Now it's the Philistines on the west. Arameans on the east, Philistines on the west. You see what you get for trying to make buddies, buddy-buddy with the Arameans on your east? You're going to get it now. God's bringing you to an end because you attacked Jerusalem. Arameans on the east, Philistines on the west, and they devour Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away. His hand is still stretched out. The northern kingdom is not humbled. They don't repent. They don't turn to Judah. They don't submit to the throne of David. I'd love nothing better than for the northern kingdom to to flee to the south and submit to King Hezekiah. Many did. The believers did, by the way. A remnant from every tribe fled to the south. And identify. That's why there's no, it's mythological, the 10 missing tribes. That's garbage. The believers within all those tribes relocated to submit to King Hezekiah and they became citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. All right. But pride and arrogance keeps them in denial. Leadership is cut off and then the populace turns against itself. 
When you have no real leaders, then you just start blaming everything on everybody. And then Manasseh will attack Ephraim, and Ephraim will attack Manasseh. They were, they were the two twin uh, sons of Joseph. They were the, Manasseh and Ephraim are basically the tribe of Judah. I mean, the tribe of Joseph. I keep misspeaking today. I'm not an apostle, okay? I said that last hour. I am not an apostle. All right. Manasseh and Ephraim are the twin sons of Joseph. And yet now they're at each other's throat. Because there's no real leadership. There's just tyrants. We talked about that back in chapter 1. Tyranny. The final tyranny of Israel victimizes the needy. If you can't govern, if you can't provide for those that need your governance, well, then plunder them. (laughs) Right? They're not doing anything for you anyway. And you start victimizing the widow and the orphan and the poor. The government is supposed to be an instrument in the hands of God. And instead, they, uh, they fail in their function. The final tyranny of Israel victimized the needy. You know what I find interesting? When we finally see the fall of the northern kingdom, you know the king's name, the, the last king in the north, you know who he was? Hosea. <laughs> and then you have the prophet Hosea. Okay, Different guy, same name. And I find it interesting. While Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying in the south and encouraging King Hezekiah, we have Hosea falling in the north. And of course, the prophet there. Well, I'm out of time. A virgin will conceive. I want to teach that Christmas message all over again, but chapter 7 is in the past. A son will be given, a child will be born. I want to teach that message all over again, but chapter 9 is in the past. We've got chapter 10 coming up. We've got chapter 11 coming up. Oh, there's more there. All of these are marvelous, marvelous Christmas messages. So, uh, anyway. I forget. Christopher charted out. I think we might even be dealing with Satan in uh, Isaiah 14 for our real Christmas Sunday message. That'll be fun. We'll get into, get into these things. Well, God's faithful. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the perspective you're giving us. Old Testament perspective, New Testament perspective, First Advent perspective, Second Advent perspective. Father, I like the eternal perspective the book of Isaiah gives us because the book of Isaiah also is going to speak about the new heavens and the new earth. It's according to your promise, Father, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I thank you for the powerful message, how the light comes into the world, how a child is born, a son is given. And Father, it may be... If visitors today or folks sitting here, they've never understood why it was that a child was born and a son was given. How it is that you yourself came to live the sinless life, to go to the cross and to lay down your life that we might have eternal life. Perhaps today is the day that um, an unbeliever will see that light, that the gloom will give way to the light. Might today be that day. And that perhaps today in trusting in Christ, it doesn't take a, a work. It doesn't, you don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to be baptized or fill out a form. All you have to do is trust in Christ. Trusting in Christ to receive eternal life. The moment you do, the moment you place your faith in Christ, you will have a new name written down in glory. Father, I just thank you so much for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to study it today. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.